This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 19. Today my guest is Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. We're going to be talking about the Libertarian Party of Canada. Jacques Boudreau. Welcome back to the Darcy Drill podcast. How are things? Very well. And you? Things are good. I haven't been doing much podcasting. I'm glad you were available to make an appearance. All right. Always happy to come on. Okay. So um, the listeners will know you as the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. Uh, you've been on the show many times and we've discussed some interesting topics. But we haven't talked much about the Libertarian Party itself. So I'm curious, when someone who isn't familiar with the Libertarian Party asks you about the party, what is your first response? I always go to the non-aggression principle, because to me that is foundational as a Libertarian. And for the, the people who listen who don't know, it's simply states that the initiation or the threat of initiation of force against the innocent is wrong. Now, it's important to properly define what we mean by innocent. We, we don't mean here innocent in, in the context of politicians who sometimes will brand you guilty of things that they don't like you to do. Here I'm talking innocent in the context of natural rights. So it, it would, well, I think it might be better to, to explain this um, through examples. For the longest time in this country, you could not smoke marijuana. Possession of marijuana was deemed a, a crime. Now, from a non-aggression principle, if you're at home and you smoke and you don't bother anybody, you would be deemed to be innocent. So the, the aggression on the part of the state towards people who didn't bother anybody but happened to be doing something that politicians didn't think was appropriate would be, again, a violation of the non-aggression principle because from a natural rights perspective, they were innocent. But, but again, society would deem them to be guilty because laws have been passed to say, hey, you, you can't smoke. So that's it's a simple example to illustrate, again, that... Um, there's a lot of things that politicians over the, well, millennia for that matter, have, have passed laws saying, hey, we, we disagree with what you're doing and we're going to make this, um, I mean, we, we're going to deem you guilty if you engage in them. So now, after explaining this, a lot of people say, well, you know, gee whiz, I, I, I agree with this. Until you start pointing out to the history of um, laws being put on the books simply because somebody disagrees with what you're doing. I mean, at least I put my, my uh, you know, like my belief in libertarianism, um, I, I wouldn't say are at odds, but there are a lot of things that people do that I disapprove of, but it's not my job to interfere as long as what they do again, does not interfere with other people's freedom or, or well-being, right? I mean, you have to live and let live here. And so that's foundational. And, and when you push it enough, then 
then people suddenly start backtracking. You know, so for example, um, if if a politician decides that 20% of your income has to be turned over to the state at gunpoint, well, if you don't pay, you're guilty. But from a natural rights perspective, you're completely innocent. I mean, keeping your money, <laughs> you know, you're not aggressing anybody, you're not uh, violating anybody's rights. So when I start arguing that, well, you know what, the income tax is, it's basically armed robbery. And then th that's where, you know, we lose a lot of people. But in, in a nutshell is you simply look at the action of the people. If they don't violate other people's rights, their freedom, if you, you know, then they are deemed innocent. And if they are innocent, there's all, all kinds of stuff that governments do that they ought not to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like for you and I, it seems obvious that the non-aggression principle and that philosophy that it extends fairly naturally into how we would create policies in the libertarian party. But I think you'll still get people asking you, you know, what is the difference between your party and these other parties? Because they're trapped in kind of this conventional model of the political spectrum. So how do you respond to that? Well, I think the, the gap, like, let, let's take the party that currently would be the most, uh, see, different, I, I'm talking here, fairly well-established parties are the ones that, you know, get above 5% of the, the, the votes, right? So I'm referring to the PPC. You know, the PPC is led by a, a gentleman who, you know, based on the, the type of stuff that he quotes, I would say, has probably read many of the books that I've read. I mean, he, he will quote Mises and Hayek and Rothbard. Uh, that's a good first step. But then when you look at their platform, you know, the best that I could do is to refer to them as libertarian light. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they would continue to do that we wouldn't do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I actually had Max on recently. Um, some of the listeners probably know I did work for Max for a while. I do enjoy talking to him. Um, I think what happens with a lot of political parties, um, the conservatives in particular, and the PPC, they end up coming to some of the same conclusions as the libertarians, but maybe from a different, they come at it from a different angle. So sometimes we end up sounding the same or our policies end up looking similar. But yeah, when, the, when it's built on that foundation of uh, voluntarism and the non-aggression principle, you know, the libertarian party, all their policies stem from, from those ideas. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and let me add, um, like I think a, another big difference between us and them is that most libertarians that I know anyway are, when it comes to economics, uh, much more Austrian than anything else, which means that we don't believe for a minute about central planning of any kind. Uh, whereas th the rest of the, uh, the other parties, they, they continue to believe that the Part of the role of the government is to direct the economy, which, you know, I keep saying does not work, has not worked, and more importantly, cannot work. I mean, that's the thing that people, you know, all you have to do is read Mises and Hayek to recognize, you know, the, the six reasons why it cannot work. And I've never heard these things challenged, you know, it, it's always 
that people pretend that these arguments, these very, very solid arguments, uh, don't exist. So, um, you know, like we, we would have a real free market. Like anybody who argues that we have a free market right now, they're just kidding themselves. I mean, we, we have um, cronyism at best, right? We, we continue to have, and this is, again, very interesting, is if you talk to a lot of the economists who work for the Bank of Canada, and they got hundreds of them, I think the majority of them would agree that the government, um, you know, should not decide the price of tires or broccoli or whatever it happens to be, right? That it should be left to the market to decide what the price of these items through supply and demand is going to be, except they make an exception for interest rate, like the price of money. Ah, well, then now we need the central bank to tell us what interest rates are going to be. And if you were to push them to a logical conclusion, I mean, the whole thing from their point of view, I think, would fall apart because the same reason that would lead them to believe that they cannot decide what the price of broccoli is going to be would lead them to conclude that they cannot, you know, move the dial on interest rates to achieve what they want. And once again, I mean, I, it's, it's not like my crystal ball is is the greatest, uh, you know, probably not better than most people, but I'm looking at what's happening in the real estate market right now. And I think there's a distinct possibility that we're going to have a bloodbath. And, and what I mean by this is like just yesterday, reading an article, personal and business bankruptcies are up 30% compared to last year. Well, in a rising interest rate environment where people took on a lot of debt because interest rates were super low, Right. And suddenly it gets ratcheted up and you, you have a hard time meeting um, your debt obligation. You, know, you, you can see a lot of people coming to market, having to sell their house. I mean, again, I don't know all the details and, and maybe my my prediction. Or it's not even a prediction. I think it's more a question of probability. Maybe my assessment is wrong, but I, I think it's a distinct possibility that if interest rates go up um, enough and stay up long enough, I mean, again, I, I, people have done the math and there are some people who are looking at an increase of 60, 70 percent in their monthly mortgage payments. I mean, that's that's going to cripple a lot of people, particularly if you combine that with the inflation rate. So and, and all of this was the Bank of Canada's doing. I mean, interest rates were held low for too long and, and again, artificially so for, for the purpose of, you know, um, you know, sort of goosing the economy. Plus, the other thing that you know I need to point out is let's assume for a minute that you believe that driving interest rates low, very low, is going to be a boon to the economy. The reverse has to be true, right? As soon as you increase them, it has to have a detrimental impact. Now, I think in many ways they acknowledge this because they think it's going to cool the economy and bring down inflation. But this idea that we're going to have a soft landing and that somehow we're going to minimize the damage logically doesn't seem to hold to me. Again, you, you cannot goose massively the economy by reducing interest rates and suddenly expect that it's going to, to have only sort of a, a mild negative impact. doesn't seem to hold. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I probably give you way more than you ask for in your question. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think it's uh, very important to touch on some of these uh, current events. Um, 
And yeah, I, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is that in a free market, you wouldn't have, uh, number one, you wouldn't have these, the interest rate suddenly go up or suddenly go down overnight just at the arbitrary whims of uh, politicians and the Bank of Canada. I mean, there would be, it would take time for the amount of savings in the market to enter into uh, the loan market and everything else. And all that stuff happens more gradually. And um, it's not just done through manipulation at the Bank of Canada. Very true. Let's get back to um, the the Libertarian Party, your role as leader. What made you interested in being the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada? Well, twofold primarily. One is back in 20, 2019, I believe, um, the, the party had a convention in Ottawa and I attended and I had suggested to the president that I could make a presentation that I had made um, at work at the time on unfunded liabilities. And uh, I'm grateful that she said yes and, and I presented and well, quite frankly, I got rave reviews. Um, I mean, people people came to me afterwards and, and quite a few of them and said, uh, you are, um, or you ought to be the next leader of the party. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I thought, well, that, that, that's, that's very gratifying in many ways. So, so there are people who thought I would be, um, a good representative for the party. And I certainly, believe that to be true. I, I, I'm a fairly introspective person. I have a pretty good ideas of the things that I'm good at and things that I'm not good at. And I, I do believe that I would represent or that I do represent the party. Well, I am, um, I think in part because of my background, you know, as an actuary and knowledgeable about finances and, and again, unfunded liabilities and the like, I, I do come across it with a certain amount of gravitas. Um, you know, actuaries are um, for, um, among for people who actually know what we do. You know, there's a certain aura of, of being knowledgeable and smart people. And, and so all of this, I think, is useful in terms of providing credibility when you speak. Um, I don't think I come across as a nut job, which sometimes... Uh, can be a problem, I think, for libertarians because, let's face it, our ideas are not in the mainstream. And when that is the case, you do have to, you know, come across as knowledgeable and well-read. And and I think I have all these things. Um, so that, that, that was number one. Number two, and this is the one where it's been uh, disappointing, is I thought it as I retired last year, uh, that I would have a lot more time to dedicate to the cause. And um, I mean, this is all good because it's for fa good family reasons, but we had two grandsons born. We've been spending a lot of time providing help to um, our son and daughter. Um, we're in the process of trying to move. Uh, so that's been disappointing, but uh, you know, doesn't get older and less help is required. Um, I'm certainly hoping that um, 
you know, the coming year is going to be better from that point of view. So, um, on the subject of uh, libertarian nut jobs, obviously trying to organize a political party around a cast of different characters, I'll say, there, there are some struggles. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Like, what, what kind of problems do you face internally dealing with, um, you know, people who are hyper-individualistic, say? Well, it's a huge struggle, and we are entirely, uh, I mean, everything rests on volunteers. Um, again, I'm certainly not in the position to point fingers at people because in spite of being retired, as I just said, I've had limited time. So I'm certainly not going to start pointing the fingers at people who have jobs. Um, but but it is a struggle because we don't have the money to pay somebody to advance a lot of things. Uh, you know, like it would be, let's face it, when you volunteer for things, um, you know, by definition, by definition, you're not getting paid. And if you're not getting paid, it's not, it's not terribly difficult to find things that hold a higher priority, right? So things kind of get put off and not acted on. And, um, and yeah, I mean, libertarians tend to be highly independently minded, which means that, you know, they'd rather look after their own affair or simply be left alone. So it, it is, it's a, it's a very, very um, large struggle. And I think we certainly have to do a better job of reaching out or using people who've actually uh, volunteer their, their time. Um, and that's something that I have to do a better job of. Um, that there's someone who is a marketing expert that I've been trying to connect with over the last week. And, you know, hopefully if we can do that, we, we can advance a few things, but it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, the libertarian party in the United States, uh, has seen some moderate success. They are the third biggest party uh, in the U.S. I think there's some exciting stuff coming out of there now uh, with the Mises Caucus and the people who are involved there. I guess, first of all, what are your thoughts on the Libertarian Party in the U.S.? And do you see the chance of any of their success having uh, some fallout uh, for the Libertarian Party in Canada. Well, my my comments on the Libertarian Party in the U.S. are, I suspect, a year or two out of. Uh, uh, well, I'm not up to date. Let's put it that way. I, I get most of my knowledge about them from Tom Woods, and I know that he was highly critical of what was his name, Gary Johnson, I believe, uh, who's the leader. And I don't know if you see again. I'm probably out of touch a little bit because I don't know if he's leader or not. Um, he painted a picture that was not um, a good one. I'm aware of the Mises caucus and if they are making progress, uh, they certainly, I mean, I'm certainly happy to hear that now. So I'm, I'm just kind of skipping over in terms of success that they might've had recently, but I will say this, that, uh, you know, they often say politics follows culture to the extent that the Libertarian Party in the U.S. is changing cultures. 
I have little doubt that we would benefit. Right. Gotcha. Um, so on that, on the note of culture also, um, there's also a lot of kind of external struggles that the Libertarian Party faces, but I think every small political party faces. Part of it is selling your message to voters, uh, but another big part of it is the amount of bureaucracy that you have to go through to even exist as a political party and the amount of hoops that you have to jump through to make that happen. So can you tell us a bit about the where the Canadian Libertarian Party is at uh, with those, with that type of stuff, with the with Elections Canada, and with uh, maintaining the party status. Right. So every three years, Elections Canada requires that a registered party send the signatures of two hundred and fifty uh, of their members, and this is to keep your your registration uh, up and running. Uh, to your point, I do agree that it seems ridiculous. Uh, like if you can f- point to having received at least 250 votes in the last election, it seems to me that that should be good enough. But no, every three years we have to file these triannual uh, triannual uh, forms. And there was a deadline of June 30th. At that point, we submitted, I believe, 190 signatures the work is ongoing to try to get more. The last update, now let me backtrack for a minute. We went through a similar struggle three years ago. The last time this had to be done, we had to ask for an extension, which was granted. And eventually we did submit the 250 signatures. So we're finding ourselves in the same situation where the, at the deadline, we only had 190 or so. The last update I received, I think we we're about at 220, and I, I know that we have some stuff in the pipeline that we that might get us to 235, and that it is ignoring other um, input from other people. So, but but let's say 235. So we have another 15 signatures to get. We have reached out, you know, to the point I made before about how you know libertarians are very, um, uh, well, they say it's like herding cats. Uh, we, we have repeatedly sent emails asking for the members to please sign the form and send it in. Um, and you know, it's, it's met with, um, I mean, some success, but, but not as much. So anybody who, who hears this, who would like to help us out, I right, please sign the form. Um, I think it is posted on our website, although I'm going to have to double check that and send it in. By the way, we are, for the time being, being waiving the $10. Like if you're not a member, uh, but you signed this form, we're going to grant you membership in the party for a year at no cost. Yeah, right on. Um, so I know that part of the conversation uh, that you had with, the president of the party was that you're looking at ways to provide value to the members so that the, the members of the party see value in contributing and to uh, being a part of it and to signing, signing the things like these forms to make sure that the party still exists. So what is, 
what is providing value to the memberships, to the members look like? Well, we're looking at um, a couple of things. Number one is um, getting the, the membership uh, involved in decision-making, right? Where we would, to the extent that we want to mod modify the, the party's platform, you know, if people want to introduce things or they want to remove certain elements, then, you know, the, the, I suppose we'd have proper motions and members uh, could vote so that it would be maybe more participatory than it is currently where right now it's, it's done by the executive. So if, if you're not a member, of course, you can't vote on any of this. But going forward, um, you know, we'd have to change things, but it would be well, uh, here's some value in being a member is that you can actually have an impact on the direction in which we are going. So what is it? I mean, why, why is it so important that the Libertarian Party continues to exist? And obviously, I mean, I'm a member of the party, but to, to play devil's advocate, why is, it, why is it important that the Libertarian Party even exists? You have um, a lot of uh, you have a lot of political parties out there now. You have a lot of alternatives to the progressive conservatives that exist. And some of them are starting to sound a whole lot like, like we did when we were the only alternative to uh, some of those, those right-wing parties. Well, first and foremost, again, we have to be very, very careful. Um to jump to conclusion in terms of um, what, what people are promising and what they're actually going to deliver on. So I think here, for example, of Pierre Poliev, he, and I've tweeted this many times, it looks like he's regularly going to our website to look at our platform. I'm not saying he's doing it, uh, using some of our elements. Now, I'm far less interested in being in power than I am about changing the way governments operate. So to the extent that somebody takes elements from our platform, you know, more power uh, to them. But it is one thing, you know, during the campaign to say, I want to make Canada the freest country in the world, which is what he's saying. And actually doing it, I, I'm, you know, it's not like I haven't heard these things before. Um, like just today, I was listening to a different podcast where Brian Jean, who's running for the, what's it called, the UPC? Um, yeah, yeah, the United Conservative Party in Alberta. Okay. Oh, the UCP, okay. And, you know, he was saying that he wants to make Alberta the freest uh, place on earth. Okay, again, it sounds great. But it seems to me that when I look at the platform of these people, that their definition of free pales in comparison to my definition or, or what freedom would be like under a libertarian party, which is why I think it's, it's crucial for our party to continue to exist because there's a huge uh, difference between their concept of freedom and our concept of freedom, right? If, if 
like I, I doubt that Proliev, with all this talk, is going to reduce uh, the amount of taxation very much. Well, under a Libertarian Party of Canada, it would be um, drastically, you know, reduced. So there, like right off the bat, I mean, it's very difficult to argue that one is free when a third or 40%, uh, you know, I remind people who are listening that the average household in this country pays 43% of their income in taxes. And this is all in, right? This is not just income tax, but it's income tax and land transfer tax and GST and excise tax and, you know, a plethora of, you know, you know, dying from a, a thousand cuts type thing. Now, um, you know, 43%, it's, it's very difficult to argue that you're free when 43% of your income is taken away from you by force. So, Again, like it would be Pierre Polyev, okay, you tell me you want to make this country the freest in the world, but what is going to be your tax policy? And I don't see a lot about that. So if you want to adv adv advance a true freedom, uh, I think we're the only ones that carry it. Like again, the PPC, I, I see nothing about substantial reduction in taxation. And this is just one example among many, right? Because most of these parties, again, they believe in some form of central planning where the government comes along and helps that industry or demonizes that industry, you know, as we've seen from the liberals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and another note on that number of uh, 43% is what people are paying in taxation. I think the average income, so if, you, if that's the average amount of taxation is 43%. The average household income in Canada is under $90,000. So that's, that is a substantial amount. 43% is a huge amount of $90,000. I mean, whereas, you yeah, know. The, the, numbers, the numbers I'm quoting at that time, the average income, household income in Canada was $84,000. Yeah. Right. So 43% of that, you're looking at, you know, north of $30,000. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yes, it seems it seems crazy that uh, that uh, there aren't riots in the streets. In my opinion, yeah, it, <laughs> so, but but you know it's very it, it's uh, people have got to wise up here. Like when when I you know enumerated all these different taxation, right? This is done by design, right? Because if you let's assume you know for for one minute, let's assume that. You eliminated the GST, land transfer tax, uh, excise tax, gas tax, carbon tax. I mean, let's say you eliminated all of that and the only tax that you paid was an income tax. And let's assume again that we don't split it between, you know, provincial and federal, but it's, it's just a single bill that you pay. And let's further assume that we no longer have... Um, your tax, your income tax being withdrawn at the source, okay? That it's in like the old days. People don't know this, but in the old days, you paid your income tax at the end of the year, right? You, you, you calculate how much you owed, and then you'd write the check. Now, what happened very, very quickly is that when people had to write a check for $33,000, they got really upset. Rightly so, Right. So what did they do? Well, they introduced the withholding because, you know, under the 
the idea that if you never had it, you'll, you're not going to miss it type thing. And then, you know, it's like if it moves, we're going to tax it. If it doesn't move, we're going to tax it. Um, we, we're going to spread the load so much that people are going to have a hard time understanding exactly how much they pay. I mean, this is all done by design to to ensure that people don't get too upset. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another point I always like to make, and some libertarians don't agree with with me on this, but when it comes to a, a libertarian party, I always like to look at what would what would the outcome be in the absence of the state, in the absence of government? What would taxation look like in the absence of government? And that's how I form my opinion on what a good policy looks like. And so, well, first of all, so that people know exactly where I stand is in theory, I am a, an ANCAP, right? An um, anarcho-capitalist, which means essentially no government. Um, but so, as I said, in theory, because while I have read uh, the arguments as to why it would work, um, first of all, I wouldn't want to necessarily go there overnight. Um, I think that the government is so large right now that I think we have to be cognizant of the dislocation that would happen if, like, take an example, I think we have something like 350,000 employees of the federal government, right? You, you uh, sack 350,000 people overnight, you know, it, it, it may create such dislocation that you end up with um, something that's unworkable, right? So I, I wouldn't want to, uh, to make it so gradual that, you know, things don't get implemented. But at the same time, um, you know, it, let, let, let me repeat this, uh, because I, I've said that before. If we went back to the size of the government around the year 1900, which I believe it was something like 5% of GDP, as opposed to north of 40%, which is what it is today, I would be a happy guy, you know, and I would probably shut up and let, you know, if people wanted to, to run, to run for government where they only have 5% uh, or control of 5% of the economy, um, I would probably be okay with that. But and, and this actually reminds me of why, you know, I would like to emphasize again why we need a libertarian government is that if if I were to bring back my, um, say, my great grandparents, the, the whole set of them, I think they would be they would be in disbelief of what we have become, because back then, you know, with the government, again, at five percent of GDP, they would pretty much have been on their own and they would have been they would have been happy to be on their own right whereas now the government is so massive this this there's no aspect of life where we are not being told what to do how to do it with whom to do it you know like it, it, we we now have a government that that is so involved in the minutia of our lives I mean, to me, it is totally unacceptable, and I think it would have been unacceptable to these people. But we, we, we really have a slippery slope where things have changed gradually, and they become um, sort of the accepted norm. Um, so I mean, to, to go back to your question, yes, I'm an NCAP in theory. Practically, if we went back to, say, 5% of GDP, I probably wouldn't be pushing too hard, right? And 
again, I, I've quoted Tim before, I'll quote him again. Anybody who believes in less government tomorrow than today is a friend of mine. I mean, we do have to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess one more time, though, uh, mention the, uh, those triennial forms. Right. If you, if you want to support us, we need your help. Uh, again, if you're not a member, we are going to waive the $10. We are going to grant you a membership for a year. Please go to, um, again, I, I have to double check that it's on the website, but there's a form that um, it's a single form. It, it'll take you five minutes. You just have to fill out a few things, take a picture, and then send it in. There's there's two ways, or, or you can print it and send it by mail if you want, or you can send it as an attachment to the, I think it's membership at libertarian.ca. But again, I'll I'll see to it that this gets put up on our on our website so that people can do it if it's not there already. So please, we need your help. Yeah, perfect. Thanks a lot, Jacques. All right, until later. That was Jacques Boudreau. Go to libertarian.ca and fill out those triennial forms if you want to see more libertarian candidates on ballots. If you like the Darcy Drow podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>